and I know you're shining <laughs> down on me from heaven. Thank you, Hail be. to the chief, because he is the chief. No, hail to the chief, he is the chief, and he needs hailing. <laughs> North Carolina, James K. Paul. Welcome to the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 in under 90 and discuss the life, legacy, and little-known facts about every American president. I'm your host, Ryan Allward, joined by the bros, Blaine Zimmerman, and our producer extraordinaire and vice presidential expert, Russ Slivka. This one goes to 11. That's true. This is episode 11. Oh, yeah. Gentlemen, how are we doing tonight? Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Yeah, we've had a good time this evening prepping for this episode. Yeah. In my kitchen, as right. always. This is the podcast where we decide to read a presidential biography about every American president in sequential order, hence the term presequential. And we talk about them and we learn a lot. And Blaine, besides choosing the books that we read for the show, you also name every episode. What are we calling episode 11? Well, let's start with the book. The book is Polk. The Man Who Transformed the Presidency and America by Walter R. Bornman. Born, Say that last name again. Bornman. Bornman. Like, he was a man that was born. <laughs> Walter R. Bornman. Hmm. Uh, written in 2008, and it is 360 pages long. This episode is titled The Dark Horse. I like that. Yeah. We're going to get into that. And also want to point out, I think this is the first time you and I have had differing opinions on the book. We were chatting about that before we hit record. Yeah. Um, you love the book. I did. I was, I, when people ask me, what's the book you, you've liked the most or been most surprised about? I think the one I've liked the most have been, that I've read so far, A. Lincoln mm. and Grant. But this one was the most surprising to me at how much I liked it. That's not to say, like, and I'm separating the book from the man, which I generally like Polk, but I thought the book was really good. I wasn't expecting it because I didn't know anything about him. There were many points in the book where I was like, hey, Walter R. Bornman, please get to the point a there, little bit faster. There are some confusing parts that we'll talk about. He he somewhat hops around the timeline. Yeah, yeah. and that may throw our timeline off a little bit, right. but we'll all address it when we get there. Yeah, we also keep a running page tally because mm -hmm. why not? We're over, we're almost to 6,000 now? Yeah, we're at 5,418 pages read. Wow. That's Five, a lot. 5,500. Way to go. Yeah. This all started when we had breakfast one fine morning in Indianapolis at Just That's Judy's. One fine day. One fine day. Boys to Men and, and Mariah Carey. <laughs> But we both love to read, and uh, you had found the list by a, a gentleman who devoted six years of his life to read mm -hmm. every single biography of every single American president, and you challenged me to say, I think we should pick one of these biographies per president and discuss what we learn and give ourselves about two, three years to do it. I said, let's do a podcast, and here we are. Yep. We also enjoy a drink every episode when we're recording uh, that coincides with something about each president's story. In honor of James K. Polk, we're sipping on some delicious red wine from Oregon and California tonight. Blaine, we've already, gosh, we're, this, we're like three minutes in, we've already downed one bottle. Um, <laughs> 
This is a vintage 2017 Miles and More Cabernet Sauvignon. Which sounds like it should be a car dealership. <laughs> yeah, Miles and More BMW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, that'd be perfect. That's Miles the cab. More BMW. I think we broke that open because the California aspect of Polk's presidency was Happened the... before Oregon. Correct. The Oregonian wine that we're drinking is a 2019 Cloudline Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. So, if you were drinking along with us, you've got two bottles of wine to kill. Um, <laughs> in an hour and a half. <laughs> Or over the course of two weeks, which yeah. is how often we uh, release these episodes. Gentlemen, Russ, Blaine, yes, cheers. And listener, wherever you are, cheers to James K. Polk. Uh, guys, what do you remember about James K. Polk from social studies back in the day? I remember nothing, honestly. Russ? Not a thing. Yeah, same. Absolutely nothing. I actually remember the term manifest destiny. Yeah. Uh, regarding American territorial expansionism, but nothing about Polk. Yeah, and, but it was coined during Polk's presidency. That's right. I do know, whereas I have learned very little about this man in my 39 years of life, I do know that I feel very uncomfortable about words that have L's in them following vowels, uh, like his Polk. last name. Polk. Polka. Folk. Polka, polka, polka. Great John Candy reference from Home Alone. <laughs> Balm, calm. I don't like it's. It just confuses my tongue and throat. Hmm. I just don't know. Like so, this oh. will be a fun adventure. Yeah. I, in my notes, <laughs> I refer to James. I do. I refer to him as James. Uh, my wife actually adds an L to the word B O T H. Both. Yes, both. that's a thing. I think it's an Ohio thing. She she's from northern. the Cleveland area. Yeah, it's northern. My wife does that too, and she's from northern. Indiana. Yeah, and she makes fun of me for saying both like a normal person. Both. She adds an L. I'm like, wait, say that again. Mm-hmm. She'll go both, and I'm like, you're. How do you spell it? B O T H. Mm, there's an L in there. Uh, so we know very little about this man, and I, I don't know. Maybe you're a, a James K. Polk expert. Yeah, but we're not. If you are, I'm sorry <laughs> if we get anything wrong. <laughs> I don't mean I'm sorry that that's what you choose to be an expert in. I'm sorry if we screw something up. That's right. Yeah. Um, we never claim to be an expert at all. The book starts with a very gruesome, uh, detailed explanation of his gallbladder stone surgery yeah. while on the frontier. Just save that because we've got to get him born first. Well, I mean, that's how the book opens. <laughs> It's like the copyright, you know, the title page. This is dad. What's going on? It is gallbladder. All right, let's dive into James K. Polk's early life. Uh, He he was born when Washington was president on November 2nd, 1795, in a log cabin in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. He was the oldest of 10 kids. 10. Good grief, people. Born to farmer, slaveholder, and surveyor Samuel Polk and his wife Jane, a no-nonsense Presbyterian who was descended from a brother of John Knox, the leader of the Scottish Reformation. Knoxville? Is that where Knoxville comes from? I wouldn't doubt it. I don't know, (laughs) but I wouldn't doubt it. His mom, Jane, stamped her rigid orthodoxy on young James, instilling lifelong traits of hard work, piety, individualism, and a belief in the imperfection of human nature. Is that how you say it? Piety? Piety. I always have said that in my brain as piety. Piety. Hmm. Learn something new every day, Russ. Wait, you're Blaine. Sorry. Correct. I've had about two glasses of this delicious Miles and More BMW <laughs> Cabernet Sauvignon. Can you imagine, though, having her as your mom? Like, good night, mom. I love you. Son, 
you're totally depraved and probably going to hell. Like she was a very rigid think? woman. Okay. She was very, very rigid in her orthodox beliefs. Hmm. Anyway, the Polks had been in America since the late 1600s, setting initially on the eastern shore of Maryland, but later moving to south-central Pennsylvania and then to Carolina Hill Country. Mm-hmm. When James was 10, the Polks moved to Tennessee and settled on a farm in Maury County. James was a sickly child. Why did you laugh at Maury County? <laughs> they were like, you are not the father. <laughs> Oh, man, I need to compose myself before I tell this horrible story. You ready? Okay. All right, so James was a sickly child and was uh, too sick often to attend formal school or run around the woods with the other kids. No chasing squirrels or shooting guns or climbing trees for little Jimmy. He just had to stay at home and try not to die. When he was 16, he had bladder stones removed by a Kentuckian surgeon named Dr. Ephraim McDowell. Relying on a liberal dose of brandy as an anesthetic, Dr. McDowell made an incision behind young James's scrotum and forced a sharp instrument through his prostate and into his bladder. Ugh. The stones were then removed with forceps, hmm. which makes me wonder, like, do you think he got to keep his, his little bladder stones? Like in a jar? Yeah, or like maybe like put them into a necklace or something. I went right in through the cul-de-sac. The, can we talk about the cul-de-sac <laughs> of Douglas? Not. You broke it. You brought it up. <laughs> no, go ahead, since it's, you brought it well, up. Well, we'll just, they, they cut through his cul-de-sac, cul-de-sac of, Douglas of Douglas that yeah. you learned about on a cruise line. I, I After college, uh, I sang, uh, as many people do, just graduate with a marketing degree and then sing a cappella around the world on a cruise ship. Uh, but there were acupuncturists on this cruise ship, and my friends and I asked them, where's the craziest place you've stuck an acupuncture needle on one of your clients? And instantly, one of them goes, oh, that's easy, the cul-de-sac of Douglas. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, what? The cul-de-sac of Douglas? He said, yeah, it's uh, the perineum, the, yes. the, the area between. We don't need to go further than yeah, that. So, that's where that's where young 16-year-old If it, G- if it weren't for that surgery, uh, probably wouldn't have spent that year in college. Mm. He... Would not be he would not have become president. So it's an important no. part of the book. Yeah, so but we'll move on. Right. Yes. Thank you. Um, Gosh. He he was able to attend school after that. He was basically a and new. We have man. a new school. Go ahead. We have a new North Carolina. Yep. In first Chapel time we've Hill. heard that. That's right. I think so. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's first, oh, it's been... definitely the first time we've heard North Carolina mm-hmm. as a school because mm-hmm. before that it was a lot of William and Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Or no school. Correct. Or or Harvard. Harvard. Pack the cat, have it yet. Also, the surgery we should mention sadly prevented James from being able to father children later in life. Shocking. Yeah. Determined to succeed despite his circumstances and very sore nether regions, yes, James entered the University of North Carolina as a second semester sophomore after just two and a half years of formal schooling. That's pretty incredible. Uh, He joined the Dialectic Society at UNC, where he took parts in debates, became its president, and learned the art of oratory. He graduated with honors from UNC in May of 1818. After graduating, he returned to Tennessee to study law, serve as the chief clerk in the Tennessee State Senate, and open his own law practice. While uh, lawyers, uh, he and Sam Houston were chums. 
folks may know of Sam Houston. And Sam Houston once said that Polk was a victim of the use of water as a beverage. Was he a teetotaler? Did I miss that? No, Polk wasn't, but okay. I think Sam Houston just really liked the sauce. <laughs> he just loved it. And he was like, water. You're like, you only drink water when you get blood on my uniform, and you don't get blood <laughs> on my uniform. Uh, he also crossed paths with Davy Crockett, but he was mostly mentored by Andrew Jackson. Yes. Young James's first legal case was to defend his own father against a public fighting charge. He secured his release for a $1 fine. Yeah. That's and we will hear more about Davy Crockett in two episodes. The Millard Fillmore episode. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have to spice that one up because... Oh, oof. the King of the Wild Frontier was not a fan Mm-mm. of Millard Fillmore. Let's talk a little bit about what Polk looked like. He stood about five foot eight with a slight build. He had cold gray eyes and a grim mouth. But at least he was also a workaholic with zero sense of humor, which I get. Yeah. I mean, if... So he had, this is a full package. Well, he had a full package before Dr. <laughs> oh, Ephraim went right. down. I'd have no sense of humor either if I had my 16-year-old scrotum destroyed by some dude in Kentucky in the early 19th century. <laughs> So his first election... Sorry, yeah, let's, okay. let's get into his political rise, okay? He was already involved locally as a member of the Masons. He was commissioned in the Tennessee Militia as a captain in the Cavalry Regiment of the 5th Brigade. During the campaign of 1822 and 23 for the Tennessee House of Representatives, his popular oratorical talents earned him the nickname Napoleon of the Stump. That's kind of a fun... And the Bare Naked Ladies wrote a whole song about it. They might be giants. They might be giants. That's, sorry. Same, yeah, it's basically the same, same thing. thing. They might be giants is the same one that did uh, uh, Istanbul is Constantinople. Oh, yeah. Did they? Yeah. That's fun. That's nobody's business but the Turks. Uh, <laughs> so he won his first election. He did. By buying a lot of booze for people because you could effectively buy elections at the time. Yes. And so he showed up with a bunch of hard cider and whiskey and was like, oh, hey, vote for me. Free drink. And people were like. Okay, like, my life sucks. That'd be great. <laughs> Save the clock tower. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, my life sucks. Yeah, he wins his first election, defeating incumbent William Yancey. During his time in the state legislature, he befriends future seventh president Andrew Jackson, old hickory himself. The hero of the Battle of New Orleans quickly gained Polk's ardent support, and the two enjoyed a political alliance lasting until Jackson's death early in Polk's presidency. Mm-hmm. Polk, through much of his political career, was actually known as Young Hickory, and his political career was as dependent on Jackson as his nickname implied. Oh, yeah. Like, Jackson was a puppet master for a long—well, we'll get into that later. So, moving ahead a little bit, sure. his oratory skills. Yes. Polk was a very well-established loser— <laughs> In that he ran for the governorship of Tennessee three times. He did indeed. Um, And won none of them. The first time he, in 1838, so we've jumped ahead a little bit in the story. I haven't skipped anything important. All good. Just besides meeting his wife, but that's fine. Sarah. Yeah. So he met Sarah. Then he decided to run for governor. And in doing so, he was going to make a speech for a man named Carroll for the governor of Tennessee. Is that his last name or his first name? Yeah, his last name. I didn't write his first name in my notes. It's an unfortunate first name if you're a man. Right. It's his last name. C-A-R-R-O-L-L. Okay. Um, So he pulled a Zacchaeus on everyone and climbs this tree. Wow, that's an Old Testament biblical reference. Sure is. No, that's a New Testament biblical reference. 
He was a wee little man, and mm. a wee little man was, was he. he? Uh, <laughs> so he climbs a tree okay. and gives a two-hour speech for Carol. And Carol is like, uh, I'm not running for governor. And everyone in the crowd is like, you should do it, James. And he was like, oh, great idea. Like, Because huh. that was the plan all along. <laughs> like, he knew he wasn't running for governor, but he was like, if these people listen to me speak, they'll definitely get behind me. And then he goes, yeah, he, so he feigns surprise. He's like, oh, you're not? I guess I'll do it. And then he runs this insane campaign across yes. Tennessee. What, uh, like 30 places? Multiple statewide debates, which we all know Tennessee is very wide. It is. And there were two-hour speeches that each candidate got to give with a 30-minute rebuttal. My goodness. And he did this multiple times all across the state. Only to lose thrice. What does that say about James K. Polk's character? Or maybe it actually even started before. Maybe him being sick as a kid instilled in him this need to continually prove himself, to work hard. Stintuitiveness. Yeah. Yeah. The persistence. I didn't realize he was uh, uh, up in the tree like Zacchaeus. That's interesting. Uh, He actually ends up winning, uh, becoming governor of Tennessee. He wins one term. But in 1844, you want to go there to the Democratic National Convention? Before that, in 1839, he tried really hard to become Van Buren's running mate. That's right. Because he always thought that he would be more suited as a vice president than a president. He never really aspired to be president, even in the Democratic elections. Yeah. He even said at one point, like, I don't know if you want to put me up for president, because I think I'd be a better VP with a northern president. So this convention was crazy. So the Democrats are split with several candidates. It's 1844 now. Former president and abolitionist Martin Van Buren, future 15th president James Buchanan, who was a moderate from Pennsylvania, Senator Lewis Cass, a general and expansionist from Michigan. Big name here in Indiana. Oh, Cass Cass. County. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, Lewis Cass High School and uh, what, I guess... Mid-northern Indiana. I did not know that. Just north of Kokomo. Good catch. The Kings. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Oh, how do you know this? They were in my conference in high school. Ah, yeah. That's right. (laughs) The Kings, huh? Yeah. Also on that list of nominees were the Crypt Keeper himself, John C. Calhoun from South Carolina. (laughs) If you have not seen a picture of John Calhoun from South Carolina. I hope you're not driving. Good night. Or about to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) kids you know what just go ahead and google it if you're 11 listening to this podcast just go google john c calhoun if you've ever seen tales from the crypt you've seen john calhoun without skin blaine is not peeing he's filling up his (laughs) glass of wine Uh, now we're on to the cloud line line. 2019 oregonian uh, red i'm on cloud line wow stop Uh, Like you said, Polk was originally in the mix, uh, hoping to be Marty Van B's VP. But on May 29th, 1844, on the convention's ninth ballot, he shocked everyone and became the Democratic nominee for president. Real dark horse. Very dark horse. Yeah, he had experience as Speaker of the House and Governor of Tennessee. All previous presidents, though, had served up to that point as VP, Secretary of State, or been war heroes. So he was truly the first dark horse presidential nominee. Can we go on a little tangent about where the term dark horse comes from? Yes. I'll keep it quick. That's fine. Okay. 
Well, the term dark horse comes from horse racing, of course. It was first recorded in 1831 in a novel by Benjamin Disraeli, The Young Duke, in which Disraeli's protagonist, the Duke of St. James, attends a horse race that is won by a dark horse. Uh, quote, a dark horse which had never been thought of, which the careless St. James had never observed in the list, rushed past the grandstand in sweeping triumph. End quote. Other successful dark horse candidates for the United States presidency include Blaine. Uh, Tr- Harry Truman. Not on the list. Well, I mean, the whole Dewey defeats Truman thing. I feel oh, like he, that would. Yeah, the holding up the paper yeah. with it. Yeah, okay. Was he a dark horse nominee, though? Oh, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, like the next like seven. Yeah. Yeah. Like Taylor. Let's see. Pierce. Well, yeah. Pierce was Buchanan really a dark horse? No. Lincoln, Lincoln was. Yeah. Johnson wasn't a candidate. Grant was a dark horse. Carter. Oh, oh, he's still alive. Yeah, he is still kicking. Yeah, still building houses. Just farming peanuts, falling down, occasionally yeah. getting a cut on his head. Obama was also a dark oh, horse. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Junior congressman. Mm-hmm. And most recent, Donald Trump. Hmm. Nobody really saw that one coming. Didn't they? Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah. Anyway. Um, also, George Harrison of the Beatles was uh, a, the dark horse of the Beatles. He actually named an album uh, Dark Horse. Hmm. Kind of fun. Also, Katy Perry had a 2013 song called Dark Horse. So it's in this cultural lexicon. Uh, sure. That, but it didn't start with James K. Polk, but he was the first presidential Got dark it. Horse. Okay, so in the name of the show, that's right, the Dark Horse, episode eleven. He eventually wins the presidency, defeating Henry Clay, who ran for president a lot, like seventeen times. Yeah, just hang up the hat, bro. And his Whig opponents mocked him with the chant, "Who is James K. Polk?" Which is funny because they uh, and like released their party platform. And their entire party platform that year was four paragraphs long. So clearly they had their stuff together. Uh, James had the last laugh, though, or for him, just a cold, frigid stare. Yeah. <laughs> um, he ended up defeating uh, Henry Clay by fewer than 40,000 votes, which at the time was a razor-thin margin. And it was the last election that the election didn't happen on the same day. Yeah, they didn't really have a uniform election day, so right? So it was 12 days long, and it started on the first of november with pennsylvania and ohio and went to the 12th of november with delaware and vermont that's crazy yeah that is crazy although in this most recent election it kind of felt like it was dragging on a long time too sure yeah he's also the first president to not carry his home state and win yes he did not win tennessee which was his state of residence at the time but he also lost his birth state north carolina Mm -hmm. in the same election yeah I wonder how many other presidents haven't won that. And Clay, uh, graciously in defeat, blamed foreigners and Catholics on his loss. Well, I can see why he never won. (laughs) Gosh. Hey, before we dive into James K. Polk's presidency, the 11th presidency of the United States of America, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of our amazing sponsors. You're listening to episode 11, The Dark Horse of the Presequential Podcast. Whether you're just starting out, well on your way to living your dream, or eagerly approaching retirement, make sure you're financially prepared to achieve a lifetime of goals. Zach Cerruti, 
Rob Novotny, and their team at Northwestern Mutual can help you reach them with a personalized financial plan. They apply time-tested strategies, providing education and expert advice to help you make decisions based on your priorities. As your circumstances and priorities change over time, they will work with you to revise your plan so you can meet each of life's challenges head-on and celebrate your accomplishments along the way. Zach and Rob and their team at Northwestern Mutual will be able to unpack ideas that can leave you and your family well-planned. To learn more, visit the link in our show notes or email Rob at robert.novotny at nm.com. That's robert.novotny at nm.com. So Polk becomes president. He hits the ground running. He's inaugurated on March 4th, 1845, and he promised to be a single-term president. So funny story about his election. One of his family slaves, I'm not sure if he owned this individual or if it was someone in his family, had been hired out as a blacksmith in Mississippi. His name was Harry, and he wrote Polk a letter after the election saying that he'd lost a lot of money betting on Polk for years when he had been losing these governor races. But he won it all back when he won the presidency. You know what he won? He won $25, 11 pairs of boots, 40 gallons of whiskey, and a pound of flour and, quote, lots of tobacco. He did promise, though, he would not drink all the whiskey by himself. 40 gallons? Yes. How many pounds of flour or... or what? That seems a pound. Like a, One pound of flour. That's a pretty crazy Eleven disparity. pairs of boots. Why do you need 11 pairs of boots? I mean, you sell them. That's a good but, point. I mean, he made off. Did he, he have like an Etsy store or he something? Did, <laughs> he did well. So uh, also his inauguration, Sarah Polk, uh, the aforementioned, asked the Marine Corps band to play Hail to the Chief. Hmm. And that song has stuck to this day whenever the president makes an appearance. We play Hail to the Chief. Now I want to find the history of Hail to the Chief. Hail to the Chief because he's the chief and he needs hailing. I don't know if those are the words. They hail should be. to the chief because he is the chief. No, Hail to the chief. He is the chief and he needs hailing. hailing. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of fun. I wonder if Hail to the Chief has ever been played in an actual hailstorm. That would be full oh. circle. Okay. <laughs> Let's keep going. Immediately, (laughs) the Mexican ambassador, Juan Almonte, Mm. maybe distant relative of Danny Almonte, star and villain of the Little League World Series when I was in high school. Okay. Yeah. He was the one that they found out was like actually 16. Oh. Yeah. Either way. I was Um, uh, singing in choir at that point. His great-great-grandfather, Juan Almonte, immediately went back to Mexico and vastly underreported U.S. military strength. So Mexico was like, oh, I know they just annexed Texas. Mm. Maybe we've got a chance against these guys. Before we dive into the Mexican War, which I feel like you're going into, Mm -hmm. let me talk about the four goals of Polk's administration, okay? Okay. Number one, reducing the tariff. Kind of boring. Number two, reestablishing an independent treasury system that the Whigs had abolished. Kind of boring. Mm -hmm. Three, Kind of cool. Settling the Oregon boundary question out in the Northwest. And four, acquiring California and its harbors from Mexico. 
So in the 1840s, Mexico's border encompassed California, the American Southwest, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming as we know them today. Polk wanted this land badly. Mm -hmm. In 1845, he offered to buy some disputed territory near the Texas-Mexico border, as well as land in California. When Mexico said, nah, Polk ordered troops led by future 12th President General Zachary Taylor. His successor. Correct. Into the disputed territory, Mexico retaliated. Polk then requested Congress to declare war, which it did on May 13, 1846. His critics, including a very young Abraham Lincoln, he wasn't nine, he was probably like 38 years old, yeah. complained that Polk had deliberately provoked Mexico into war. But whatever Polk's motivations, the United States ended up losing 13,000 men and approximately $100 million in the ensuing war, but succeeded in taking one-third of Mexico's land. All right, Blaine. You're a soldier in our nation's army. Let's dive into the Mexican War. Okay. So a few things. A couple episodes ago, I mentioned that if William Henry Harrison would have lived, our country could potentially look different, right? So the original dispute over Texas was the Nuquez River. I don't know. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. It's N-U-E-C-E-S, which is just south of Corpus Christi. Anything north of that is what Mexico considered the state of Texas. What we argued, uh, what what this book presupposes is, maybe it isn't, um, we argued it was the Rio Grande. So if you look at a map, we're talking about basically cutting Texas in half. If we would have agreed to what Mexico had originally said was the border, we basically would have cut things south of San Antonio, south of Corpus Christi, and kind of up so we'd be losing the entire western half of Texas. So he fought down to the Rio Grande, and Mexico's president at the time, uh, Santa Ana, basically screwed this up royally and probably would have given away Mexico City had we pursued. I think William Henry Harrison, had he still been president, probably would have kept going. Mm. Polk was fine with the Rio Grande because that was his pre-established boundary. He also, there, there's, and this is where the book gets a little bit confusing because it talks about the battles over in Texas, the battles in New Mexico, and the battles in Southern California all at the same time, and it gets hard to follow which ones we're talking about. So we basically, throughout that battle, gain Texas, New Mexico, I guess Arizona, Southern California, up to about where Stanford is. Mm. And one of the uh, interesting battles of the Mexican-American War is the Battle of Chapultepec, which has a lot of tradition in modern military history because it's said that the red stripe on Marine leaders' pants, so non-commissioned officers and officers, represents the bloodshed on the Battle of Chapultepec and some theophany Mm. Uh, now let's back up. Let's explain what <laughs> theophany is. A theophany is actually a theological term that means when. Uh, when did we discuss this? Was in this, Washington? This was this. Yeah, episode one. A theophany in in scripture is when a pre-incarnate Jesus shows up in the Torah, the Old Testament, before he shows up in the Christian scriptures, the New Testament. I'm nodding to our producer, Russ, who is who is Jewish, the Hebrew, the Hebrew of, of the podcast team. Uh, but go on. Yes, a, a foreshadowing, if you will. So at Chapultepec, the main leadership in this battle was Lieutenant Longstreet. 
and Lieutenant Pickett, which we'll hear a little bit more about when we talk about right? Yeah, yeah. He he led the famous Pickett's charge, correct? Which I still don't know was that a Union charge or a Confederate charge, but we could just save it. Let's just get into that when that <laughs> shows up. You don't. It was a it was a Union charge, right? No, no. He he. It was a Confederate. <laughs> it's got to be your bowl. <laughs> That's a Tommy Boy uh, reference. So when we get talking a little bit more, so Henry David Thoreau, uh, famous poet. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually spent a night in jail because he refused to pay his taxes as a protest to the war. As they were fighting in California, Mary Todd Lincoln's cousin, William Todd, created okay. the California flag with Did the bear. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And Wait, then, say that again. Mary Todd Lincoln, so her, Abraham Lincoln's wife's cousin. Yep, William Todd created like basically like hastily drew a bear on a flag and uh that's still the californian flag that's pretty cool i like that and then you have fremont who's this like wild card john fremont yeah ends up running for president just like roaming the countryside with like 500 artillery cannons like it was just totally normal at one point i think he just like showed up to a base and was like hey uh the president said we should have all this. Wow. And they were like, really? And he was like, yeah. And yeah. they were like, well, okay. Okay. Go. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, should we check first? Or yeah. Just... <laughs> the Mexican War that Polk engineered became the transformative event of the era. It not only changed the nation, but also created a new generation of military leaders, such as Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, Stonewall Jackson, George Meade, and Jefferson Davis, who all first experienced military command in Mexico. It was there that they learned the basis of the strategy and tactics that dominated the American Civil War to come. One of the big things that we had a huge advantage on over Mexico in this war was that our artillery was explosive. And theirs was not. So it, huh. in layman's terms, okay. when our shells hit the ground, they blew up. Okay. Whereas theirs were just balls just going through the air. Giant, massive. Yeah. So like if it hits somebody, they're probably losing a leg unless it hits them in the chest or the head. Then they're probably going to die. Yeah. Whereas ours, if it hits, it's going to kill everyone in a X amount of foot radius. It, I'm not expecting you to be a munitions expert. Was was it a different metal? Like what what I, made I'm it explode? Not entirely sure. Okay. I just know that ours were explosive, theirs were not, aka ours were more lethal. Yeah. Which is a large advantage yeah. you know, in a ground war. Wow. I didn't realize that. Where'd you learn that? Was that in the book? In this book, yeah. Oh, well. I was probably reading it upside down again, like I tend to do. <laughs> Anything else about the Mexican War, Blaine? Um, oh, yeah. Prince, I think it's Prince, it might be Price, his Missourians came, 5,000 strong. They are the Mormon Battalion. They I'm were the so confused only... about what you're saying right now. I feel like I feel like I just got my letters in a game of Scrabble and my brain okay. is trying to decipher them. Say so there was again. a guy named Prince that led a battalion from Missouri okay. that brought 5,000 troops. Okay. Uh, with the understanding that they would be left alone during their westward expansion if they helped with the war. Interesting. And they were Mormons, you said? Yes. And so it's the only unit that was designated by religion. And it was basically their way of saying, like, so there's some history with the the Mormons moving from Pennsylvania to Missouri and then deciding we're not welcome here either. We're going to keep going west. 
I think they, they were, also stopped through Illinois at some point. Well, it was St. Louis. Yeah, was okay. The area. So what the Price guy did was he was like, well, if we come fight in your war, will you just leave us alone? Mm. And they were like, yeah, sure, we need bodies. Yeah. Um, and it ended up becoming an issue in the future when they were settling in Utah. Was it Grant that during his presidency was dealing mm-hmm. a lot with the Mormons yeah. out west? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. That's intriguing. I never knew that. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of fascinating. It's the first unit designated by religion, if you don't count the Crusades. American. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> this is not that podcast where we dive into the Crusades. Thank you for, for your perspective uh, from a military standpoint, unpacking a little bit the, the Mexican War. So Fremont ends up getting court-martialed. Which uh, is what? Like, he goes stands trial for potential war crimes is it a military yeah. court okay yeah and uh he overturns fremont's court-martial like making him free and ruins some political relationships however he knew he was going to be a one-term president so he didn't have to hold any like mm. political capital why do you think polk decided and proclaimed to be a single-term president i think that they made it one of the requirements when putting him up for okay like when they were like on the sixth and seventh ballots, the and they were think, yeah, yeah, when they were thinking about making him the presidential nominee, they were like, if only if you agree to one term, because mm. I think that was a big thing on their party platform. Was it not also the um, Polk agreeing to annex? Or I think he supported Texas becoming a state that made John Tyler, President Number Ten, decide not to run for reelection, or he bowed out of the race. Correct. Andrew Jackson convinced him to not run again. Okay. And Andrew Jackson was like, no, 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 we got this from here. Like, you did your job. Yeah. Everyone hates you. Everyone hates you. Yeah. I've got a guy. Yeah, bow out. Let's- he actually, he got the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, mm-hmm. uh, which ended the Mexican-American War. The same day, he attended the ceremony to lay the cornerstone of the Washington Monument. July 4th, right? Which was attended by Eliza Hamilton. Oh, now that's cool. Mm-hmm. See, this is what I love about this podcast, seeing where the stories overlap. And so Alexander Hamilton's widow, Eliza... Was a big proponent of the Washington Monument. And she's there at the same time that James K. Polk is witnessing the laying of the cornerstone after he has just signed Man. the treaty of guadalupe I, hidalgo i love that mexican-american that's so cool if you're a nerd like us thank you for sharing that you know what we don't know anything about go ahead polk's vice president man if only we had amongst the three of us at least a a self-proclaimed vice presidential expert to come in and weigh in on the vice presidency I think I have that information. Wow, wow. Oh, hello, Russ. Well, hi, Russ. Hello. Tell us a little bit, Russ, about James K. Polk's vice president. Sure. George Dallas, which is, some would say, Dallas, Texas's namesake. J.R. Ewing. Did he create the show Dallas in the late 1970s, early 80s? Absolutely. Cool. Go ahead. George Dallas was the son of Alexander Dallas, who was Madison's Secretary of the Treasury and then became the Secretary of War. So he was 
very much born into a political family. And despite himself, he continued to be appointed into political offices. So he grew up, he went to Princeton, he took the bar, he was a lawyer. He very much enjoyed being a lawyer. But of his first five political offices, they were all by appointment by the state legislature. He wasn't elected. He really didn't want to do it, but because of his father and his family influence, he just went into politics, which is kind of a a through line through his entire life. Like, he really just didn't want to do it. And then he became vice president? Yeah. I mean, there was five or six people that they tried to put in the vice presidential place before him, but then he did become vice president. Actually, he got the nod from John C. Calhoun. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) You got to warn me before you drop his name. (laughs) Calhoun praised the nomination because it meant that no New Yorker was going to be on the ticket then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's something Polk thought he wanted. He wanted to be vice president with a New York president. Yeah. Do you think people in Dallas appreciate that their city was named after a guy that was like, I don't want to do it? Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it seems like this guy who has just been appointed his entire career is now a heartbeat away from the presidency. Correct. He seems somewhat kind of blasé about his role. (laughs) Uh, He had actually told Polk during the election that if he became a burden to the campaign, he thought of himself as a a bobtail annex to a great kite. So he's basically saying... I I don't even know what that means. He... Thought bob- he was a bobtail annex to a kite. Yeah, basically useless. There's no oh. need for the okay. for the bobtail on the kite. And he said, if I cause any distress, any possible reason to get rid of me, cut me loose because I don't want to do it. Now <laughs> I want to know the history of kites. Yeah, it's <laughs> Afghanistan. Oh, the kite, kite runner. Yeah. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah. Gosh, that's full circle. Russ, any other riveting facts about this George Dallas guy? Sure. Yeah. It, wow. Yeah. So he was from Pennsylvania, and his his uh, his rival in Pennsylvania politics was James Buchanan. Ah, future fifteenth ah. president. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they were coward. Yeah. They were at odds the entire time. There were two parties. So when he. When he came to Sounds about right. uh, the vice presidency, he wanted to keep Buchanan out, keep Buchanan from being part of the cabinet. But he kind of put himself in a position where he allowed Buchanan to become President. in the cabinet. Yeah, he did that by telling Polk that he needs to get rid of John C. Calhoun. Oh, God. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> As secretary of state. When he did that... He was like, it's terrifying. Every time I walk in the hallway... John. <laughs> when he got rid of Calhoun, it opened up a space. They brought in Buchanan. And that rivalry continued mm. until the end of the presidency and the vice presidency. Calhoun's kind of like Tom Segura's uncle. Like, you feel like he needed to announce he was coming into a room. Because <laughs> he knew it was terrifying. I'm he's here, like, you I'm guys. coming. I'm coming in the room. I look horrible. I scare myself. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks. You're welcome. Russ, thank you uh, for that insightful discussion about James K. Polk's vice president, George Dallas. George Dallas. Okay. 
We appreciate you, Russ. Let's talk a little bit about Oregon, okay? Uh, In the early 19th century, the Pacific Northwest was jointly occupied by British and American settlers. Mm -hmm. But as the century progressed, Americans began to outnumber the British, and they increasingly felt like the rightful owners of the Oregon country as it was known. The ones that didn't die of dysentery. (laughs) (laughs) You tried to ford the river and died. Yeah. You've you've shot too much bear. You can't take that back to camp. Neither country, though, was interested in waging war over the land. In 1846, Polk and the British drew a border at the 49th parallel with some adjustment for Vancouver Island, what is now Washington State's boundary with Canada. 49 or die, right? That's where it came from. Well, that was 46. This is also where the term manifest destiny came from. Correct. Unpack that a little bit. Nope. John O'Sullivan. That's it. That's it? That's in your notes? John O'Sullivan. Negotiation about Oregon. Coined the phrase manifest destiny. John O'Sullivan. That's honestly what I remember from social studies. That's it. Buchanan did not want to uh, bring Oregon in as a state, and he claimed on the name of diplomacy. We shouldn't do it. But that's foreshadowing into Buchanan's cowardice. Wow. Tell us how you really feel. No, that's true, though. With this, the United States obtained its first uncontested patch of Pacific coastline. Successful completion of Polk's foreign policy goals would represent the first major American territorial gains since the Adams-Onis Treaty of 18. 19. Polk, like others of his time, Blaine and Russ and you, failed to understand that sectionalism had formed a new explosive compound in the nation. He lacked a far-seeing awareness of the problems that were bound to arise over the status of slavery in the territory acquired from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Now, Polk was a slave owner himself, and his deep personal involvement in the plantation system colored his stance on slavery-related issues. Much like Andrew Jackson, Polk saw the politics of slavery as a side issue compared to more important matters such as territorial expansion and economic policy. Yes, humans being owned was not important enough. I didn't know that Polk was a slave owner until this book. It was, what, 13 of the first 15? Well, the first... Just the Adamses, the only ones that weren't. John and John Quincy... Of the Adams family. Yeah. Was Fillmore? Because he's from New York, possibly. I don't know. Either way, a lot of them. A lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. During his presidency, many abolitionists harshly criticized Polk as an instrument of the slave power and claimed that spreading slavery was the reason he supported Texas being annexed and later war with Mexico. The biggest concern about that was a lot of people, and I think we talked about this in an earlier episode, a lot of people assumed because of the land mass of Texas that it would become six or seven states, which would bring a giant imbalance of power in Congress of slave states versus free states. What they didn't realize was the people of Texas would be like, no, 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 we're big. It's all us. Yeah. You're not splitting this up. No, don't mess with us. Yeah. That's right. With the exception of the territory acquired by the 1853 Gadsden Purchase during 14th President Franklin Pierce's administration, the territorial acquisitions under Polk established the modern borders of the contiguous United States. So if you've seen a map of the U.S., you have James K. Polk to thank. Yeah, I think he's one of, from pure landmass, he's one of the like larger 
gains as a president? For sure. I mean, besides the Louisiana Purchase with Adams and Jefferson and yeah, Monroe was because in there we're as talking well. Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington, Utah, Nevada, oh yeah, Montana, Idaho, yeah, yeah, all those. I mean, it was one point two million square miles. Yeah, and immediately influx of potatoes. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Like, have you tried these? They have them up this place called Idaho. There's a place called Five Guys that has some amazing yeah. fries. They're like, thank you, James K. Polk. And then they made the state into like a fry on the top. <laughs> like they make them. There is that narrow part of Idaho up top yeah. that does look like a French fry poking out of the little container. It sure does. Thanks, James K. Polk, for French fries. Yeah, we're. Freedom fries. <laughs> Freedom fries, or Polk fries, as they were not known in the 1840s. Oh, my goodness. One of Polk's last acts as president was to sign the bill creating the Department of the Interior on March 3rd, 1849. Now, this was the first new cabinet position created since the early days of the American Republic. He had misgivings about the federal government usurping power over public lands from the states. Nevertheless, the delivery of the legislation on his last full day in office gave him no time to find constitutional grounds for a veto or to draft a sufficient veto message. So he signed the bill. So if you're the Secretary of the Interior listening to the Presidential Podcast right now... That'd be awesome. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Please come on the show. <laughs> yeah, because before this, the Secretary of the Interior would have just been the First Lady. She, I mean, she was the one that decorated it. <sighs> wow. The Interior of the White House. Yeah. My goodness. Dolly Madison, probably the most famous Secretary of the Interior. Yes. <laughs> I can't believe that I just agreed with that. <laughs> You're right. Blake. I think yes. the current Secretary of the Interior would be like, yeah, I can't really hold no, a I, candle to Dolly Madison. I get it. There's not much that I do. <laughs> she saved the uh, the portrait of Washington, right? She did. Yeah, yeah. when uh, when her husband was <sighs> the president while well, the White House got burned. Yeah. Despite all his success, James K. Polk had sworn that his first term would be his only term, and he was true to his word. When up for re-election in 1850, hey, he kept his hat out of the ring. Sadly, his refusal to run again may have led to his early demise. And on that light note, we're going to refresh our beverages and let you hear from another of our fantastic sponsors before we dive into Polk's legacy and little-known facts. You are listening to episode 11, The Dark Horse of the Presequential Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Ryan. Thank you for listening to this episode brought to you today by our sponsor, Podcorn. If you are a podcaster or you're thinking about starting a podcast, you've got to sign up for Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on Podcorn's platform. You can set your own rates for ads, and you get to collaborate with brands directly. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is right there to support you at every step and make sure that you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. You'll get notified when Podcorn has a new sponsorship opportunity that might be a good fit for your podcast. Submitting an ad proposal to brands could not be easier on Podcorn's platform. Go to podcorn.com, that's P-O-D-C-O-R-N.com, or you can check out the link in our show notes. Sign up today for free and start browsing sponsorship opportunities that will help your podcast grow. 
Blaine, before we dive into James K. Polk's legacy and little-known facts about him, let's talk about his last day in office and maybe an additional president that we had as a country. Yeah, so this might actually fall into little-known facts. Go ahead. Uh, So his inauguration, at the time, inauguration day was March 4th, whereas now it's January 20th. His inauguration fell on a Sunday. And in keeping with tradition, didn't want to do anything on the Sabbath. So they pushed the inauguration to March 5th. But because the law said that the president left office on March 4th, even though there was no oath taken, there are people who are, we could call them partisans, of David R. Atchison that claim that he actually served the country for a day from Mm. March 4th at noon until March 5th at noon, because it was a relatively quiet day. Polk was on his way out. Taylor was on his way in. And so because David Atchison was the president pro tempore of the Senate, he was technically next in line for the presidency. So supposedly he succeeded the vacated office for the day. What they're forgetting to mention was that he lost his election so technically his term ended at noon on march 4th as well i get it so really we either depending on how you want to look at it had a day without a president or james k polk was just president for an additional day which is a better explanation it would have been crazier if something catastrophic or unexpected had happened like if they would have had a 9-11 yeah, like like a some constitutional crisis. Like, who's president right now? Yeah. Is it Taylor? I'm I'm sure at that point that they probably would have both gotten into a room and been like, we can probably work through this together. Mm. This David Atchison guy, he was the president pro tem of the Senate. What does that yeah. even mean? Uh, what is that? Like the next in line after the vice president. I think it's the is the, it the speaker head of the, of the minority. Oh, okay. I think. I could be wrong about that. I'm not. How does that succession go? Vice Dude, president. You're going to make us look so bad right now. I know. We're not experts. We've never we claimed to be. To. Yeah. I know. It's I, I I think it's president, vice president, speaker of the house. Okay. Is that correct? Which you would the, think it might be secretary of state. I maybe mean, it is secretary of state. But either way. Know. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, we may have had an additional president for 24 hours. That's kind of fun. Depending on how you look at it. Because it fell on a Sunday. Isn't that interesting? Like, at that time, that the the Sabbath, which is technically, oh. Russ, I'm going to rely on you on this. This is sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday? You got it. Yes. So, the President Potemp is authorized to preside over the Senate if the Vice President is unavailable. Okay. So... Okay. That's, so that's, and I think it's probably usually the majority House leader. I don't. So, so where was George Dallas at this time? Well, he would have been leaving on the that's same right. day. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, huh. Um, Interesting. But we talk about his successor. One of the things that we we kind of gloss over it was the beginning of the Mexican War. Yeah. The Mexican American War, and there were some pretty good quotes from the beginning of the Mexican American War. Uh, one is from Zach Taylor. And now I got to make sure I have the right page on my notes. So the when the first shot of the Mexican War happened, mm-hmm. like the first hostilities, Zach Taylor wrote a letter back to the White House that said, 
hostilities may now be considered as commenced. Uh, like very understated for the beginning of a war. Correct. But we'll talk more about Zach Taylor in the next episode. Uh, and obviously, like the president didn't get that for like 10 days. Oh my gosh, right? <laughs> it took so long to get information. And there was another great quote that Mexico has passed the boundary of the United States and has invaded our territory and shed American blood on American soil. Zach Taylor said that? No, that was another. I can't. Okay. It was. Um, was it old it, Scott Han- It was Hancock uh, or Scott. Herbie Hancock. No, Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott. Yeah. He was the one that said it. So he was that at was the old, time. That was a hold on. That was old fuss and feathers. Which brings me to my next point. Go on. Uh, well, let's. Winfield Scott was on the front lines of the Mexican American War. Polk decided that he saw him as a political rival and wanted to take him away from being able to get any big wins. Was he not a Whig? He was, and Taylor basically surpassed him. We'll talk about that in the next and, and episode. And Winfield Scott also shows up in Lincoln's story as well, I think. I think think you're thinking of there's a different civil war general named okay. scott okay i think that's who you're that's thinking fine. that's fine it's um it, 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 but yeah. old fuss and feathers yeah so everyone's <laughs> nickname in this time period started with old uh like everyone's except for polks who was young hickory yeah, which yeah. is just a you know offshoot of old uh so i wanted to pose a question to both of you i've got a series of old nicknames and i want to know if you can place the nickname with the person oh i'm so excited russ how do you feel right now i feel excited so we'll start with some easy ones and then we'll go into the harder ones so old tippecanoe william henry harrison correct okay uh old hickory andrew jackson andrew jackson of course so russ old rough and ready Teddy Roosevelt. Wrong. <laughs> uh, old, rough, and ready. Zach Taylor. Zach Taylor. Mm. And then you just old fuss and feathers. Yes. Winfield Scott. Here's the hard one. Old Boolean. B-O-U-I-L-L-O-N. Spell it again one more time, please. B-O-U-I-L-L-O-N. Old wow. Boolean. Like a, like a Gold thing you bullion. put in a soup. Oh, oh, like, like okay. Boolean. Bouillon. Bouillon. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> The French word, bouillon. Yeah. Um, Thomas Jefferson. Can you give us a hint? He got the first name right. Thomas Paine? No. You're wrong time period. Aquinas. Thomas Hart Benton. (laughs) Uh, From Missouri. Uh, Yeah, so basically if you were anything of worth in the mid-1800s, you had an old nickname. Wow. That's crazy. Why did they call him Old Bullion? Producer Russ, look that up. Yeah. Why did they call Thomas? It Hart? actually took me a while to look that up because I put it in my notes as everyone's nickname was Old Something, Old Bullion, Old Hickory, Old Tippecanoe, Old Fess and Fessers, Old Fuss and Feathers, Old <laughs> Rough and Ready. And then I was like, crap, who's Old Bullion? Uh, so I had to look it up, and I, so I Googled old bullion, and all you get is, like, how long is bullion good for? Yeah. Like, what if I have an old bullion cube? Can I still use And I was like, okay, so I've got a – so I went nickname, didn't get it. So I was like, okay, old bullion, Mexican-American War. Finally there it got is. it. And so I was like, this will be a good quiz to put everyone on the spot. But I am impressed that you guys got all of them but that one. Because obviously there was no way you were getting that one. I kind of want to have a quiz in every future episode. That was really fun for me. I can make that happen. I can only imagine it was fun for our listeners. Okay. 
Yeah, that's fine. I will say, um, we talked about this off camera. This <laughs> Wait, are we, are we videoing this? <laughs> you didn't know. Uh, this adventure has made me much better at Jeopardy. Oh, man. First of all, to, to Alex Trebek. Yes, to Rest Alex. in peace. God bless. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you said you've destroyed your sons, your three boys in so Jeopardy. we lately. were having dinner recently, and we mentioned game shows. Okay. And uh, we were like, you guys know what game shows are, right? And they were like, no. And it brought me back to you know childhood, and you take a sick day, and you watch The prices Right? And I was Family like, that's feud. crazy, like... The kids of our generation aren't growing up watching game shows. They're not a thing. So I said, I explained what some game shows were, and I was like, well, there's Wheel of Fortune, which is basically like Hangman with a wheel. Yeah. And then there's Jeopardy, which is a bunch of random facts. And the kids, or at least my kids, who do everything possible to watch as much TV as they can, <laughs> were like, can we watch it tonight, Dad? And I was like, yes, a thing to do with yeah. the boys. And I already love Jeopardy. And man, any there, almost every episode, there is a column that is presidential or president adjacent. And because of this journey, I have been killing it. <laughs> You're just sweeping the category. Oh, yeah. There was one last week all about Abraham Lincoln. There was one all about secretaries of state. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And so obviously, you know, we're deep into an episode about a president with a rich history when we're talking about jeopardy and superfluous things. <laughs> Shout out to my friend, my good friend, oh. Don Nottingham, whose favorite president is, is James sheriff? K. Polk. <laughs> he's actually a... Uh, no. Uh, he, no, he's not a sheriff. Oh, he has a badge goodness. in his wallet because he he's, he's an assistant DA out in Colorado, Okay, which was part of... Of the territory gained under James K. Polk's presidency. Wow. wow. Full circle. He loves James K. Wait, Polk. So you know a human being whose favorite president is yeah. James? That's amazing. He What's loves his him. name? Uh, Don Nottingham. Don Nottingham. I salute you. <laughs> Sheriff. He, uh, he also has very specific rules about Jeopardy uh, because he loves Jeopardy as well. I love Jeopardy. Don is one of the smartest people I know. Don, if you're listening, I love you. Yes. Uh, he has a rule that if you're watching Jeopardy, you cannot pose the question to the answer until Alex or whoever's hosting now finishes the question or finishes the answer. Oh, see, I'm, I'm a you, you, serial you, offender. Of you that. can't see it and say it. Yeah. You have to wait until the host is done. If you see something, say Then something. say, what is James K. Polk? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, speaking of Polk. Yeah. He embarked on a goodwill tour of the South upon his retirement from office. What a good segue that was, yeah. by the way. My goodness. It was a solid Thank you. mortar in between the bricks. <laughs> An explosive mortar <laughs> munition. Yeah. I can't remember. It's believed that this tour of the South uh, is where he contracted cholera, which killed him on June 5th, 1849, a mere 53 days after leaving the White House. He was only 54 years old. I have 103 days. 103 days? Okay. That's what well, I have. All right. Well, it's, So somewhere between 53 and 103. Yeah. Yeah. His last words were addressed to his wife. Quote, I love you, Sarah, for all eternity. I love you. End quote. So you could say it was love in the time of cholera? 
Is that a Hamilton quote? No, it's a book, I believe. Oh, is it? You say cholera? I say cholera. Cholera? Well, whatever. Cholera. I was hoping that you would open the door for me to make a love in the time of cholera reference, and sure enough, you did. I'm a little sad that he didn't sing Sarah by Starship when he passed away. (laughs) In his defense, it wasn't written for another 137 years. Sarah, that's probably the most Sarah, you've got me this season. That's dying man. of color. <laughs> anyway, uh, because he died of an infectious disease, the president was hastily buried in a city cemetery near the outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee. Though he didn't stay there for long, the following year his tomb was completed on the grounds of his home, the mansion Polk Place, and his body, which is was in Monopoly. Moved. <laughs> Polk Place, otherwise known as Our House, if yeah. you're James and Sarah. $340. I got a hotel on it. Uh, but even 103 then, days is correct. Oh, His ex-presidency of 103 days okay. remained the shortest in history. All right. Well, sorry. sorry. No, it's okay. Please. Yeah. Uh, none so of us are Tell experts. me more about your Monopoly facts. Yeah. <laughs> so he was moved again, though. So this is what's crazy. So Sarah, his widow joined her husband in death 42 years later in 1891, and she requested that the state of Tennessee maintain Polk Place. The state almost purchased it to renovate into the governor's mansion, but actually uh, Polk's heirs sold the property to a developer. In 1893, James and Sarah's bones were moved to the grounds of the state capitol in Nashville, and Polk Place was raised. Now, legend has it, that James K. Polk still roams the Capitol grounds in Nashville to this day. Probably mad that he got stuck there to make way for some luxury apartments. I wish people could have seen the body language you just gave <laughs> off. It was, it was glorious. It felt it was good. a lot of shoulder movement. Oh, man. Uh, you're saying they acceded to Sarah's wishes. They they granted her wishes. Is, is that? Uh No. They no, didn't. They didn't. They did. The, they, so it they wasn't her. something that made Sarah smile. Oh, my God. Was that a Hall and Oates reference? <laughs> sure was. That's the first Hall and Oates reference in 11 it episodes. It only took 11 episodes to get Sarah there. Sarah, smile. Oh. So, actually, this is what's crazy. As of... Also, that took a lot of personal courage to go falsetto uh, to our tens of followers. I'm just impressed uh, that you know what falsetto means. Of course I do. My, so proud my of My mother's you. a singer. Oh, my, yeah. My podcast co-host is a singer. I Cheers. know things that with singing words. That's right. Well, this is what's crazy. So as of 2018, legislators in Tennessee are still actively debating whether to move Polk's bones a fourth time, this time to his old family home in Columbia, Tennessee. Huh. Isn't that crazy? How much do you think... and and. Tar Heel fans, feel free to jump in and, and, mm-hmm. and at presequential or presequential at gmail.com. How much does North Carolina claim it? That's a good question. He was born there. He went to college. He, well, there. I mean, I mean the University of North Carolina, UNC. Mm-hmm. How much, like, is where does he rank against Michael Jordan uh, amongst <laughs> yeah. North Carolina alumni, right? Like, Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player to ever live. Uh, and also the president, Polk, who brought on 1.2 million acres. No, square miles. Square miles, sorry. Yeah. 1.2 million square miles of, of the nation. Which one ranks higher? 
Probably Jordan. I would assume it's Jordan. Yeah. He's got the fresher kicks. James K. Polk probably wore just like... <laughs> well, I've got the Polk 12s. <laughs> <laughs> that got me. You're not wearing your Polk 12s right now? <laughs> oh, man. So we're cementing, yep. like, in North oh, Carolina yeah. lore, Michael Jordan holds more clout than James K. Polk. It, it goes Michael Jordan, Wright Brothers, 17 other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wild though. I mean, it's a, it's probably their only president. Like having only read what I've read, yeah, I don't remember anybody else being from the University of North Carolina. Producer, Do you Russ, think that when he can you was that up? introduced on inauguration day, mm. that they used the song from the Bulls, <laughs> the Five Eight Sophomore? What was the name of that band? Oh man, yeah. From the Go- University of North Carolina. <laughs> North Carolina. James K. Pole. He just comes out and just stares at everyone. <laughs> just austerely. Okay, so there's three presidents from North Carolina and Andrew Jackson, Polk, and Johnson. Lyndon Baines or Andrew? Well, Andrew was from. Andrew. Uh, yeah, yeah. Andrew. Yeah. Andrew Johnson. Although it's disputed about where Andrew Jackson was from. Well, yeah, because... The Walks Hill or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, like where that was. Yeah. Interesting. Alan Parsons Project. That's what it is. Yeah, the I Alan Parsons Project. Serious is the name of the song. Do you think that that was... I love His real the... inspiration was James K. Polk's inauguration. Speaking of great songs about James K. Polk, if you have not heard They Might Be Giants version of James K. Polk, the song, it's brilliant. Let, let's dive into it. To his legacy, shall we? Hold on. Russ has something oh, to say. Oh, okay. Russ, share. James K. Polk is the only president that attended the University of North Carolina. There what? it is. North? North? North. With North. an L. Polk. <laughs> <laughs> so he's our only Tar Heel president. Yeah. Uh, can you look up where Tar Heel came from? The, no. The, the derivation nope. of Don't. That? Don't. I'd be happy it's to. Probably not. Please do. Probably, okay. Yeah. Can we dive into James K. Polk's legacy? I will say the last seven minutes of this podcast have been my favorite. Gold. We've, we've got we've covered Michael Jordan. We've covered a random potential one day president. We've covered the Alan Parsons project. Thank you. Uh, Hall and Oates. Yeah. And what was the song you brought up? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, Monopoly, oh. Jeopardy. Oh yeah. Love in the time of cholera. Uh, they might like, be giants. Yeah. They, wow. yeah. I mean, this is wow. We've really. Pack this full. Wow. If you uh, have epilepsy, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> we're kind of all over the place <laughs> on someone who brought such a giant landmass to the country. I, I Massive feel like tracks of land. For someone who had no sense of humor, the irony is dripping from the episode. Yeah. Listen, this guy was probably one of history's most underrated presidents. I agree. And it was an amazingly underrated book. He got more done in four years than. Many presidents do in twice the time. And he accomplished every one of his goals. He came in, he said, I have four goals, which from a leadership perspective, to come in with four very clear, concise, easily attain well, attainable goals and stick to those, not overreach, put all of the focus on those four goals. And then it, like name the other presidents that did that. Right. That didn't promise everything in the moon on their first hundred days. Oh, you believe in the moon? <laughs> <laughs> I, we should say Blaine has this thing with conspiracy theorists who would We've covered that, it. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the that was good, though. Yeah, that yeah. Was good. He not only added uh, 
1.2 million square miles of American land. But he opened the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, mm-hmm. the Smithsonian Institute in D.C. If I would uh, just jump in. Go, Go Army, ahead. beat Navy. Oh, that, that, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. And the Department of the Interior, which we mentioned. He was instrumental to the construction of the Washington Monument. He issued the first prepaid postage stamps, putting the onus of financial responsibility on the mail sender as opposed to the recipient, which was the practice at the time. That's actually genius, now that I think about it. Like, because otherwise you could be like, I don't want that bill. I'm not paying for that. Yeah, or I, I, I never got it. Sorry. Yeah, that's, wow. Oh, yeah. That You finally got me. 11 episodes ever, in. You got me on something I didn't catch in the book. If Unless you've ever, you Wikipedia that after, which I you did, have. didn't you? I might have. Yeah. If you've right. ever licked a stamp or put one of those little self-adhesive ones on the top right of an envelope, think of James K. Polk. Huh. That's good. Yeah. You got me. He also reestablished an independent treasury and lowered taxes. Yeah. Polk is <sighs> the reason that the U.S. stretches from the Atlantic to the Pacific. His administration extended the boundary of the United States to the Pacific Ocean and laid the groundwork for states such as California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Washington, Idaho, Oregon, and Montana. Ten, ten. states. Yeah, that's Good ten. grief. I feel like, I mean, Lee Greenwood owes him a lot. Because <laughs> otherwise, it's sea to shining river. Sea <laughs> to a muddy Mississippi. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, really, America became the world power that it did because, with, now granted, with the help of his wife, he successfully masterminded this war that turned the U.S. into this global superpower, right? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I really think the key takeaway from number 11 is surprise. Like, it's it's yeah. shocking that we don't know more about James Polk growing up for somebody that had such a huge influence on the country. I would completely agree with that. I think maybe that's why I like the book so much. Maybe it wasn't the writing. It wasn't what it, it was just. I was like, wow, I had no idea. Zero clue. Yeah. I think that's the broader, more meta aspect of this journey on this podcast that I really enjoy is this discovery and asking the question, how is our nation, how's the fabric of our country different because of each man's time in power and hopefully woman one day, but how, how is America today different because of James K. Polk? Mm -hmm. It's considerably. Yeah. Very much. Polk, by the way, number 11 is ranked number 14 currently in the C-SPAN's Presidential Historians Survey. He's ranked just below James Monroe, number 5, and right above William Jefferson Clinton, number Mm 42-ish. Bill. Bill. Yeah. Slick Willie. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Arkansas. (laughs) Uh, there's a great, we've mentioned it several times, but there's a great song by They Might Be Giants called, cleverly entitled, James K. Polk, that sums up his contribution to our nation extremely well. Yeah. Quote, in four short years, he met his every goal. He seized the whole Southwest from Mexico, made sure the terrace fell and made the English sell the Oregon Territory. He built a national treasury. Having done all this, he sought no second term, but precious few have mourned the passing of Mr. James K. Polk, our 11th president, 
Young Hickory, Napoleon of the Stump. Napoleon of the Stump. What a fun nickname. Brought to you by the same folks from the Animaniacs episode. <laughs> Istanbul, Wisconsin-Stantinople. <laughs> That's right. They might be giants. Shout out to that. You guys want to dive into some little-known facts about James K. Polk? Yeah, I uh, I don't have any. Okay. Well, I've got about six or seven. I, I know you would, but yeah. I'm shocked that... I mean, I don't have any we haven't already covered. At his inaugural ball, in deference to Sarah Polk's religious convictions, dancing and music were halted when the Polks entered, then resumed two hours later after they left. Huh. Oh, so she... Okay. She was against dancing. Yes. Hmm. And music, apparently. Yeah. Well, that's... It's, it's a thing. Probably no car drums. Drumming. Drums no. is the that's the the, the line. That's the big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up like that. Yeah, it's, you did. Yeah. What denomination did you grow up in? The uh... First Baptist. Oh, oh, First Baptist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The no OG. drums. No dancing. No drums. No fun. Well, we had fun. What was fun? Hold on. What was fun in the First Baptist Church growing up? Man, uh, youth group was fun. Okay. I mean, there was no drums, there was no dancing, there was no going to movies, and there were no playing cards. Um, but other than that, was a blast. <laughs> so you guys played, like, jacks and hopscotch? Like, what do you do? Well, there was a basketball goal. Oh, that's always fun. <laughs> we're in Indiana. What do you <laughs> think on. we did? We played basketball. During his day as president... Uh, anyone was permitted, I mean anyone, was permitted oh. to visit the White House for office hours. For two days every week, citizens and lobbyists could drop in on James K. Polk. And to... most of the time they were just asking for jobs. Right. Which he actually said they were more annoying than his Whig opponents in Congress. Uh, most presidents said that, like, <laughs> through 1900. This was a thing that went on, like, Gosh. through McKinley. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the first person to instill that? What uh it sounds like it would have been Jackson, such a fan of the people. Yeah, I think Anyone it went it went in. back before that though. Really? Okay. Yeah, because I remember like Adams Jefferson being like every president was annoyed by that. Huh. That the fact that anybody could come in and ask for stuff. Now, not so much. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> Over the course of his single term, Polk regularly spent 10 to 12 hours a day at the office and took a total of just 27 days off. Not even a month off in his entire term. four years? Yeah, in his entire term. Huh. Took 27 days off. Nobody was accusing him of being on the golf course too much. (laughs) Not so much. Golf is another word that I don't like that has an L following a verb. Golf. Don't know how to pronounce it. That's how I feel every time I miss a putt. Golf. Golf. Listen to this James K. Polk quote, all right? Okay. I know you know a lot of them, kids. Here we go. Quote, no president who performs his duty faithfully and conscientiously can have any leisure. I prefer to supervise the whole operations of the government myself rather than entrust the public business to subordinates. And this makes my duties... Very great, end quote. Huh. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's probably right. Sounds about right. Yeah. Now, many attributed Polk's boringness to his refusal to drink socially. You had mentioned earlier that the politician Sam Houston called him, quote, a victim of the use of water as a beverage, end quote. Yeah. While he wasn't a temperance advocate, Mm -hmm. he also was not like a big boozer even though he did win an election by buying a bunch of people booze, which his mother 
very much disapproved of. I never put to those two and two together that he was totally fine buying booze for people, but at his own inaugural ball, drinking music, dancing, all stopped when he came in the room. I think he invented uh, the phrase, you do you. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing else for that. Polk, we mentioned, was a slave owner. Two of his slaves, Elias and Mary Polk, both survived slavery, dying in the 1880s. Another named Matilda Polk died still in slavery in 1849 at the age of 110. First of all, that's an old-ass woman. If you're 110 years old, (laughs) regardless of whether you're enslaved or not, that is old. Mm Mm-hmm. A hundred. What is a one hundred ten year old enslaved person doing for James K. Polk? First of all, not much. What's she doing? I don't. Well, so wait. What can she was one hundred ten? What eighteen forty? So she precedes the revolution. She was born in thirteen twenty seven. No, <laughs> on Polk Place. <laughs> She invented Monopoly. Yeah. Matilda Polk, we have you to think. Hasbro? Who's that? No, Matilda Polk. All of this is going to get there. Yeah, that wasn't great. Okay. <laughs> Other than his slaves, Polk had no staff on the White House. He appointed his nephew, Joseph Knox Walker, his personal secretary at the White House. Now, this guy would go on to be a uh, colonel of the 2nd Tennessee Infantry Regiment in the Confederate States Infantry. Army. What did I say? Infantry. I've had four glass, five That's glasses fair. of of wine tonight. Yeah. So he was on the Union side. No. No, he was on he the was losing a side. Yeah. Yeah. You, you said he was Army of the Tennessee. Yeah. He was. Okay. He was yeah. a traitor. Sure was, and got wrapped up pretty quickly. Yeah. Youngest president to date, forty nine. We didn't cover that. He was the youngest to date someone? No, he was the up to that point the youngest president uh, in the White House. <laughs> the way you said it, I was like, oh, maybe his parents allowed him to date no, a no, lot no, younger no. than... Really, 49 years old. Yeah, at that point was the youngest president. Who was the youngest? Uh, was it Kennedy to become president? I think it was Kennedy. I think he was like 35, was it? Isn't it? 37. Is it not in the Constitution you have to be 35 You have years to old? be 35. And but I think Kennedy citizen? was 37, which is why I think a lot of people think you have to be 37. Oh, it I see. Is okay. John F. Kennedy was 43, so was we 43. were way off. We were way off. I think the Constitution says you have to be 35. Oh, sorry. Teddy uh, was the youngest at 42. Okay. The first one to be elected was JFK at ah, 43. Yeah, I yeah. see. Okay. Friends, thank you for listening to the Presequential Podcast. If you loved this episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a fellow history buff, and leave a review. Also, you can get episodes early, ad-free, and you can get some bonus episodes of the podcast when you join our Patreon community. Go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Presequential. Be sure to follow us on all the social media platforms at Presequential. That's P-R-E-S-I-Q-U-E-N-T-I-A-L, Presequential. And let us know what you thought of this episode. Our next episode on 12th President Zachary Taylor will be released on Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021. Until then, thank you for listening to episode 11, The Dark Horse on James K. Polk of the Presequential Podcast. Presequential.